Hi, I'm Beck Rayner and this is the Military Wife Life Podcast, a podcast that celebrates, empowers, supports and embraces the women behind the military men by building connections, acknowledging our strength, focusing on self-care and our mental health. Let's do this together. This episode of Military Wife Life is proudly brought to you by Defence Bank. Serving those who protect us, Defence Bank have the largest on-base branch network with 37 locations around Australia. They have Army, Air Force and Navy covered. To find your closest branch, visit defencebank.com.au. This week's episode is the second in a series focused on support and information for ADF families and us, the spouses, related to COVID-19 and all that comes with this huge change that we are all adapting to, getting our heads around and really just trying to feel our way through. A lot of us make use of various supports to help us cope with military life, whether that be posting into a new area, going through deployment, separation, or just the everyday. And one of those supports are our community houses. Our community houses in the various posting locations are, for many of us, a place where we know we can go and find other people just like us, other spouses who just get it, just get spouse life, the ups and downs, the celebrations and the challenges, and that need is still there even during a pandemic. So today I'm talking with Vonnie from the Gallipoli Barracks Community Centre about what they're doing now that spouses can't actually physically make use of their community house. Welcome, Vonnie. Hi, thank you very much for having us. How are you going in isolation and, and what's getting you through at the moment? It's not without its challenges. I'll, I'll give you that. Is Wine gets me through right now and uh, Netflix. Von, when did you come to the realisation that the way you offered support and events at your community house was going to have to change and, and I guess pretty quickly? So Gallipoli Barracks, we were probably one of the first to respond as our brigade made the decision very quickly, like back the 16th of March before it got stricter and stricter. The traffic that we would bring onto base, they weren't going to be able to sustain that. And I'm sure we can all agree with little people trying to instigate the 1.5 metre rule was going to be a challenge within itself. So what were your first initial reactions? Because obviously your heart and soul goes into your community house and all that you do there. And, you know, you know, all the members and, you know, the situations and how much some of them depend on coming to a support like the community house. Like what was your initial reaction? First initial was, oh, I wonder how long this will be for. And my first response was, sure, what are we talking like? Just for the next two weeks? And as I spoke to her and she was like, no, you need to look longer term than this. And the reality of, you know, all the Easter packs and all the craft I had planned, it just, I could feel it all dropping away, that it wasn't going to happen. We were going to have to find another way to engage the community and we're going to have to walk quickly. When you left that meeting, what were your first steps to, I guess, really embrace being able to support your members in a different way? Like what was your first steps? Yeah, my first steps were to obviously notify anybody who was potentially on their way in by, you know, on social media straight away, just letting them know that the decision had been made and that we were closing access to the community centre. And from then I basically went into a chat that I had with my team, my committee, and relayed everything that I had been told and said to them, right, I'm going to drive home and we're going to need to, everybody just let that sink in for a minute and then we'll come together and see what we're going to do. 
like you mentioned initially, it was like, okay, well, we can kind of, you know, put some things on hold for a little bit and we can sort of navigate our way through and we'll still be there for the members, obviously, with our community page, Mm. our online page, and we'll sort of just feel our way through. But then when it was the realization that this was going to be a long-term thing, obviously, you can't just leave your members high and dry without that support. They need to have something. So I guess, what were some of the things that you guys decided to do online and were you even across all of these things? Did you have to learn how to um, implement these online events and and what you're doing there? How did you get your head around all of that? So first of all, we did these platforms that are available, the Zoom platform and like all these other ways to reach out to um, people. We had no idea because that's not the way we've ever operated before. So we had to go around and see what we could find, what, what would work, you know, ask some questions and see what we could do to get engagement up as quickly as possible so that as this information continued to grow, we could continue to engage and not let people become lost, not let people feel like, oh, well, the community centre's closed, nobody cares anymore, I'm just here at home. How important is a community house to some people? For other people who are just posted into an area or um, have their friend group at the community house or have little kids, how important is a community house to keep them connected? A community house in every location is, I believe, really important to allow people to connect, to allow people to be able to come and be somewhere that is safe and comfortable and just being able to engage with like-minded families, people who, you know, have got their partners out of field for six, eight weeks, people who have got their partners away on courses, people like myself, I'm MWDU. So for me, that's my adult interaction some days. Because other than that, it's myself and the children at home. And I guess at the moment, because we're, I mean, us as military spouses and ADF families, we we know what it's like to be isolated and move around and uncertainty and all that is sort of coming with this pandemic that we're all going through. It's just that we're at next level where that uncertainty and that isolation has been taken to a next level because all of those supports we would usually put in place to help us through military life and all that comes with it have been ripped away. So it's very important that we hold on to anything and everything we can to keep connected to those people within our community that that get us and that we can vent to because military life is still going on alongside of all this it's not like you know we're at home in lockdown altogether there are people that are still MWDU people that still have deployed members still have courses that may be happening we've sort of got to juggle all that's happening alongside ADF life one of the first posts we put up after we stepped away from the center was you know that funny old meme military life make a plan go to plan b go back to plan a you know and then finish at plan c you know one of those you know we're used to adapting and changing um the course of life and I, I popped that up and said, you know, as, as military wives and spouses, we are very used to changing things. We are used to not knowing what's coming the next day, but this is next level because normally you would pack the kids in the car or pop out to, you know, the community centre for a coffee or come in for one of our craft sessions and vent to somebody that this is what's happening and they're not coming back or, you know, the course has been extended or we're not getting, you know, posted or something, but that's been taken away. That ability to come and do that has been taken away, which is why we've gone straight into Zoom chatting where people can still come in and if they're having a rough time, they can talk to other defence spouses and feel they're understood because, as you said, partners are away. 
there are many of them still, you know, operating one week on, one week off at work. What has been the response from your members now that you're operating online? We've had a really good response from our members, obviously because I think a lot more people now are obviously at home, so they're checking social media more, they're, you know, more aware and they're looking for free things and activities that they can do. So for us um, at Gallipoli, we've experienced much higher traffic to our group, um, more awareness of us, like our membership requests are coming through. Uh, People are signing up to become financial members. That's not a requirement to be in our group, but people are, oh, look at all the fabulous things you, you guys offer and they're signing up. And I just think as a general rule, we're engaging, just sharing with other people that will and get together. So what have been some of the things that you have put on so far and um, I guess some of the, the things that you're planning on continuing or implementing in the future? As we had all of our Easter crafts and packs, you know, ready to do in centre, we so we created packs for all the children and then we've offered printing because a lot of parents have been sent um, sheets for their children. So we've offered that we will print here for them and then leave it at the front or post packet. We engaged the yoga instructor who is doing yoga on a Wednesday, yoga and meditation on a Wednesday night via Zoom. And this week we will do a, a dance party with the kids for the smaller ones wiggles we'll do um, some PE with the older ones just to get them engaged before we went into the lockdown we were sort of thinking about you know little how-to videos and that sort of thing so we're hoping we can get a few of those up and running you know cooking or you know some cleaning hacks or storage hacks that sort of thing and I guess this as well is showing people that community houses are not just about coffee and playgroup because of all of these different things that the community houses are now putting on like you mentioned you're doing yoga on a Wednesday night maybe it's showing those people that maybe might not have thought about accessing a community house or maybe thought that a community house wasn't for them because they don't have kids or they work Monday to Friday or whatever the case that it's actually opening up the community house to more people it is and all of the community houses are working together behind the scenes and we're idea sharing and we're link sharing and we're sharing discount codes for things that we found that might help in in houses but the biggest challenge nationally for all of us is changing the understanding of what we do. We believe that you know families come in different shapes and sizes and regardless of the individual lifestyle, we embrace and welcome our entire defence community into our centre. We are there for everybody, but unfortunately, as you said before, people might have been at work and not had a need to engage us because they were at work and the children were at school. So now this is opening up for us to, one, show that we do a lot more than, you know, just a play group or a coffee and that we have so much more available to members in our local community. So a lot of people do tell you that they don't come in, didn't want to walk in by myself or I was worried I wouldn't find it, whereas this is the safety of their home and I've been telling everybody this week, you can turn your video off on Zoom. I can still see that you're there. You will still be able to see me. You don't need to have your video on if you don't want to, but by seeing me, then when we are back in the community centre, you'll know who I am. You can come and spot me and grab me and say, oh, I logged in and did X, Y and Z with you. They will feel like they've had a connection because they're not walking in looking for somebody to help even after life returns to normality, and I say that in air quotes because we don't actually know what life will be at the end of all of this, do you yeah. think that you might or that some of the community houses might keep some of the online stuff going because it's proven successful and they've now been sort of forced into learning how to do it and make use of it and yeah. um, maybe it's proven that it's been so successful that they can run that alongside of this face-to-face stuff? 
if you had asked any of us or yourself at the end of 2019 if they thought that this is where we would be and these sort of programs are what we would have been offering at this time of year, I don't think any of us would have ever considered it. So now that it is, I feel we're seeing that these platforms can work to reach the mums that have been at work with a seven o'clock yoga class that's online, which means someone doesn't have to go in and unlock the centre or have children minded. It can be done from a home location. So if there is a need, I know myself and my team would definitely assess the need of it and put measures in place to maintain that connection if that's the way we're able to reach out to people. And I'm pretty confident most other centres would do exactly the same. We're all learning as we go and as one of us learns we are all working together because we all have the same goal which is to maintain a connection with our community and community members in this unknown time have a look for your local community center if you're not a part of it or you're not following them on facebook do some searches and see if you can't find or ask around and see if you can't find it because i can speak personally that coordinators across this country are amazing people and they are backed by amazing committees who are all in this for the same reason so if you aren't currently connected to one reach out and see what your community center has gone on offer well thank you so much for coming on today and good luck with navigating the online world and obviously your story time and your yoga and your everything else and making sure that you're out of your pajamas for the zoom sessions and (laughs) oh i know (laughs) very much making sure i'm out of them well thank you so much for having us and and allowing me an opportunity just to share with everybody that the community centers across australia are all working together to ensure we can engage with everybody Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Steph Hodson from Open Arms. How are you? Are you in isolation, lockdown? What's happening for you? Hi, Beck. I'm actually still at work, but I did have a number of days at home last week. We, as a service, are open. So we actually have centres across Australia and all our major centres still have about five people in them. We're being very careful to social distance, but we do have some very vulnerable clients. So we are still seeing a few people face-to-face and that's because of their clinical condition. It's something that they still need to see a counsellor, which means that we're practising really good hygiene and we're making sure we're practising social distancing in some of our much bigger rooms. Most of our clients, though, have moved to online options. I guess for those people that don't know what Open Arms is about or who should be accessing Open Arms, can you talk us through what Open Arms does and who you provide services for? Open Arms is a really unique service in the sense that it is the last service left in the Commonwealth because our Vietnam veterans actually fought for a mental health service for veterans and their families. And the Vietnam veterans, because of the challenges they had coming back, the government made a commitment to them to say that we will give you mental health support and services for you, your family, your children for life. And as a result, this service exists. It started as the Vietnam Veterans Family Counseling Service But over time, and with the support of the Vietnam veterans, we've actually changed it to open arms, veteran and family counselling. And that reflects the fact that the eligibility is now anybody, one day to full-time service, the individual, their family, their children, 
can actually access the service for life. We actually are open for anyone. So one day full-time service. So that means that of the about 27,000 people who actually access the service every year, half of those are families and about a quarter are currently serving members. Because of course, ADF families and spouses and ADF members, they find themselves in a unique situation that no one who hasn't really been through it can totally understand. So having a specific service and knowing that everyone involved in the military lifestyle, the member, the family, the kids can access that. And even the parents and the brothers and sisters, if they need to, can access that service. Actually, Beck, that's a really good point. We actually acknowledge the fact that particularly sometimes there's really tough times. And um, when there's a death of a service member or someone's particularly vulnerable, we actually also um, support parents and siblings. Because often when someone's not well, you actually need the family to be able to support them. And that's not just a partner. It also can be the immediate family. Obviously, just because a pandemic's happening doesn't mean that the issues that people would have been accessing open arms for just go away. They're still there in the background alongside that added layer of going through the uncertainty of what we're all going through at the moment. So it's important for people to know that open arms is still available to access and is adapting to be able to provide those services for people. So what we've done is, as I said, we still have as a very tiny group of people who are still coming into our centres, but the vast majority are now picking up telephone or Zoom type counselling options. And we've refocused our entire workforce so that we can actually do that. Another really exciting development is today, our whole service went 24-7. For a long time, we'd sort of subcontracted our after-hours service, but because we want to make sure that the people answering the phone are veteran aware and that we can actually focus to make sure we get the best possible service to people 24-7, our service has now gone 24-7, which is a, a quite a big step for us. And it does mean, though, that we have um, a seamless service service between who you're talking to during the day and who you would actually get access to from a night time. So how does that work with people that have already been seeing a psychologist that they were allocated via open arms um, and obviously were previously doing that face-to-face and now they've transitioned to Zoom sessions or over-the-phone sessions or whatever the case may be. How does that work with the 24-7? Does it mean that those psychologists that are, I guess, work for open arms are increasing their hours or um, increasing their availability? How does that work for those? What we actually have now is we actually have a shift system, which we have a major contact center, which basically when you first call open arms, you'll actually go through to the center and they will make sure that you get to your clinician or you get to the right person. We have people who are rostered on overnight, so you might not get to talk to your clinician overnight. But what that person will do is they'll actually be able to look at the computer and they can actually know all about your case history. So because we have one system where your notes are kept, you don't have to tell your story overnight. So if you call in during the night and you say who you are, the clinician can look up who you are and then you can have a chat about the issue that's actually presenting without having to start from scratch. And that's a a real power of the service. It also means that when we're not in a pandemic and you are traveling, it means you can see someone in another part of Australia and your record travels with you. A big change for us has actually been helping our client group 
actually transition to telephone or Skype options or Zoom. We have a number of platforms we're using and what we're doing at the moment is helping people to actually set up some of the IT. We've had to train our clinicians not just to use the IT themselves, but be in a position that they can help someone else set the IT up. We have a whole range of information to help people do that and to make it easier for clients. And where we've had some clients who found it particularly difficult, that's why we still can bring them into a center and we can do that with them. So for someone who really wants to, to transition but just finds the whole IT too daunting, we can set up one session face-to-face -face following all the right rules just to get them to do safely that transition. In the past when I've accessed open arms, there's been a, a bit of a wait in my area because the, the books of the clinicians have been closed or they've been just so busy that you know I couldn't get an initial appointment for say four or six weeks, but those clinicians were half an hour away from where I was. This actually means that those people that were wanting to access open arms for other reasons other than, you know, obviously the uncertainty and all that's coming with isolation and this pandemic can easily access those services and even more so than what it was previously. And they should still be encouraged to access those services for those pre-existing things that they wanted to go and see a psychologist for. If anything, this has been an absolute opportunity because we now have their whole national workforce available to help across different regions. And it means that we are going through our, our wait list and offering people the opportunity to talk to someone who they might not have otherwise because they were in a different region. What I would say to people is because we now have a national intake center, it used to be that you'd ring open arms, it'd take a few days for someone to call you back. It would then take, you know, another few days before you actually got your allocation. And one of the issues that many of our clients, um, when we would go and get feedback from our clients was how long intake took. We now do intake in that first phone call. And in this situation, we will be able to match individuals to clinicians much faster because we now have a national pool to draw from of people who are ready and willing to do both phone counselling and Skype counselling. It's an opportunity. You don't need to ring in just because you think, you know, you need counselling. We're also here just to have a chat. This is a tough time. Change is really hard and we've all had to change overnight. We've all had to change the way we work, the way we interact with our families. And at the moment, it's okay not to feel okay. And it's okay maybe to want to have a vent to someone who's not in your immediate family about your concerns or your anxieties. So you can just ring open arms for a chat as well and talk through your anxieties or you, this is a good time if you're finding something that you were managing by yourself because you could get out and exercise and you were seeing lots of friends and you were very busy. But in this time, because we're now restricted, you may find that some of the symptoms that you'd had under control are bubbling back up. This is a moment you can come back into counselling and um, there will be someone available who can talk to you. All of those things that we would have put in place to cope, our coping mechanisms and the things that we would have used to distract ourselves or to help with our our mental health like you know exercise maybe at the gym or play dates for our kids and keeping occupied and you know connected to other people have kind of been taken away and as everyone is experiencing that we're all going through that but obviously ADF families and spouses have that added layer that they have a defense member that's away or deployed or they're separated because the ADF member was working in another state and now they don't even know when they're going to see each other again so they've got that added layer plus they're trying to homeschool 
work from home, whatever their setup is, and those supports aren't there. So like you mentioned, might find themselves just getting to that that point where they definitely need to speak to someone and I guess just get it out there and, and be able to talk through those issues with someone and, you know, work out whether they do need more support or regular support. And it doesn't matter whether you ring up for a chat or you're going to be seeking more long-term counselling. One of the things we also encourage, I love working with military families and with military ex-service personnel, mainly because they're already adaptable. You know, to be a military family and to survive as a military family, you've always got to adapt to a new situation. If you're a service member, you've been on deployments, you've been on exercise, you've gone and supported disasters. This is a group of people where we already have good coping skills. So often what it is, is about just revisiting those coping skills, the chance to talk to someone who's independent of your family situation about some coping strategies and just building on the strengths that you've already got. Another resource that we have nationally is our lived experience 80th mental health peers and their families. So last November, we actually introduced to the service nationally 40 individuals who all have either got ADF experience or they're someone who's a family member with ADF experience. And these individuals are there to help people and just act as peer support. They're super important for our clinicians because they keep our clinicians aware about what military service is really like and they train our clinicians and talk with our clinicians. But they also are there to provide support to families, service personnel. Uh, We have a mixture of peers who are Navy, Air Force, Army, and super importantly, we actually have spouses and carers. Hey, Military Wife Life community. I wanted to take this opportunity to tell you a little bit about the Defence Bank Foundation and the great work they're doing in the defence community. The foundation raises funds to support serving and ex-serving ADF members living with injuries or illnesses such as post-traumatic stress disorder. In 2019, the sole beneficiary of the foundation was the Defence Community Dogs Program, a specialised dog training program which rescues abandoned dogs and trains them through correctional services. 40 service dogs have been trained and given to veterans since the Defence Bank Foundation was established. The program gives dogs, inmates and veterans a second chance at life. Yeah, and that's definitely important to have that connection with the service providers and the people that are providing the services for ADF families and the members because having that connection to be able to really deliver a service that is tailored to what we go through and the needs that we would have is so important. It's just changed the knowledge of the ADF within the service, now having embedded within a whole heap of people who've both served and have lived the challenges of being an ADF family. I think in this time of the pandemic, it's actually even tougher because I know uh, many military families don't live near their extended family. But that also means that many military families know how it is to stay connected remotely. And it's about right at the moment, doing all those things you usually do, making sure that you're regularly talking to your family, that you've identified who are your close friends that you can rely on, making sure that you're taking the time to message them, you know, use platforms like Zoom to keep in contact with them. Just because we're being told that we have to stay apart, it doesn't mean that we can't even be more connected through social media and things like this podcast and zoom and all these amazing technology i think the the trick is not to be scared of it just jump in and and try and use it 
you know, none of us want to be going through what we're going through at the moment and the extra isolation and the uncertainty of how long this is going to go on for. But the, the one positive that will come from this for ADF families and spouses is the fact that a lot of services that may not have gone online or made the transition online in the next couple of years have kind of been forced to do that. And I guess they're hitting the ground running and adapting as they go. But what it will mean is when all of this and we go back to normal life, whatever that will be at the end of this, is that, like you mentioned, you'll have the national pool that people can have sessions via Skype with you, and then they can post around the country and still be able to see that one person if they want to. So you can have that consistency of accessing that stuff from wherever you are, which is the best for ADF families who do move around the country. So, I mean, that is the one positive that's going to come from this. None of us want to go through this crisis and, you know, it's scary and anxiety and but it is also when we we will come through it the thing is this will pass and when we come through this one you know later in the year we will have all learned a whole new set of skills and importantly open arms as a service will be able to provide much more consistent service nationally both our clinicians will be trained and ready to be able to do it but also i think sometimes people have been a bit wary of going to telephone counseling or skype or zoom and they'll actually be much more familiar with it. So A, we'll probably be able to get more consistency of skirt service. We'll be able to better match clinicians. So whilst it's not something we want to go through, we are definitely using it as an opportunity to learn as much as we can, upskill as much as we can, and improve services for our veterans over the next few months. We are all facing a time of uncertainty and change, but it is a time when if we focus on keeping a routine, staying connected with our loved ones and reaching out for support on those days when we're feeling overwhelmed, that we'll all come through stronger at the other side. For those people who are finding that they're getting isolated and they need someone to talk to, we are available 24-7. We have people who are very aware of what it means to be part of the military. The service is here for not just for um, the serving member, but for the family or for kids to ring up and have a chat. I myself have gone through the process of calling and you know putting my hand up for a session and having someone call back and the whole process. And it does seem scarier than what it is. It really is just making that call. If you are at that point where you feel like you need some sort of extra help, then there's no shame in, in putting your hand up. We should be treating it just like we would, you know, going out and getting fresh air. We should be, you know, eating well, sleeping well, the mental health and actually calling up and, and accessing those services is just a, an extension of what we should be doing to look after ourselves as a whole. Uh, when we decided to change the name with the support of the Vietnam veterans, we have a national advisory committee, which is made up of a whole range of uh, reps from, you know, peacekeepers, Vietnam veterans. And I must admit, I was really wary and I'm thinking, what name could possibly work? And we had three options. And as the options were going around the table, open arms was one of the ones on the table. And a Vietnam veteran, David Cochran, who'd served as an infantry soldier in Vietnam, he was on the committee and he looked at open arms and he said, you know, what it reminds reminds me of is um, when we're in Vietnam, when the helicopters came in for resupply and to give support, one person had to have the courage to step out into the field because the enemy would also use smoke grenades. So it wasn't enough just to have put off the right smoke grenade. You had to have one person with their arms at reach and they had to have that visual. So for him, open arms is not, you know, it can be a hug, but in reality, 
open arms is having the courage to reach out and be the person who, you know, steps up and asks for support. You know, asking for support is showing courage because it's showing the courage to say, I'm going to put any embarrassment that I'm feeling behind me because, you know, taking care of myself to look after my family, taking care of myself so that I can be here to do my job is more important. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Steph, and letting us know what is happening with Open Arms. Thanks, Beck. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. Thank you for playing your part and, and, you know, looking out for all of us. How are you and your family actually going through all of this? Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean... We're okay. It's up and down, definitely. It's just been such a massive change over the last two or three weeks. So just getting adjusted to that, I think, is the main thing at the moment. You're a military spouse. You're a doctor. You've got young kids and you're self-isolating your children and your partner's still obviously working in defence. How are you juggling it all? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think... It's been taking it each day at a time. My work has been really understanding, trying to get me working from home a bit. I mean, I was so dependent on help from grandparents and daycare, and I just had all these networks set up to try and help me, and now they seem to have all just disappeared. So it's definitely challenging. I think my partner's struggling a bit because he's working from home and he's been taking the kids when I'm trying to see patients. So, yeah, it's not easy, definitely not easy. Definitely juggling it. And I guess as as military spouses, we set up those supports because we are used to having direction from partners and we are used to having to have those routines and and all of those supports in place because, you know, we deal with isolation and and separation and doing things solo. But having those those things that we have in place ripped away, you're just like, oh my goodness, how am I even going to do this? So I guess firstly, could we go back to basics and talk through when should someone consider actually getting getting tested for the virus. Um, I guess there's heaps of information out there, but what's the current advice about when you should actually be getting tested for the virus? There is a lot of information on this and it's quite specific for a lot of different people. Trying to keep it simply, you need to be having symptoms like fever, cough, respiratory symptoms, and then also having contact with someone with known COVID or been overseas in the last 14 days. I mean, those were the stricter criteria. It is loosening up now. So if you're in an area where there's high transmission of the infection, that's also a reason to get tested. And I think the main thing is to call up your doctor because we're doing a lot of telehealth now and just go through why you think you're at risk. And they can then put risk assessment because it will be different if different scenarios like people in nursing homes are different to to healthy young adults. Um, And it will change over time because we are limited on testing at the moment. So that's why we've got had strict criteria. But hopefully as we're able to test more, that criteria will relax. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, well, there's not very many cases where I live. So And I haven't been in contact with someone from overseas, so I shouldn't be worried. As the cases for community transmission start to increase, it could be that you have picked it up that one time that you went to get supplies from the grocery store or... Yeah, definitely. We're moving from a phase where most cases were coming from overseas to a community transmission phase. So things will change over the next few weeks. And that's why we obviously have to be so careful at this time, because there are people out there with no symptoms who are carrying the virus. Yeah. So I guess someone gets to the stage where they do have to get a swab. They then have to go into isolation until they get they get the results don't they it's not like oh, well oh, i probably don't have it i'm i'm okay but in that meantime the few days where you're waiting for the results to come back you should be at home 
Yeah. So if you have no symptoms and you've got swabbed because you were in contact with someone who's now positive and you've got no symptoms, you need to just wait for that swab to come back. If you have symptoms, even if you've got a negative swab, I would say you still need to be staying home until you have no symptoms because we really want to reduce any spread of viral infections that are going to confuse the situation. And it is coming up to flu season as well. So let's just be extra cautious. Stay home until you don't have any symptoms, basically. And I guess the point is, and I mean, the message is out there, is that even if you do get it, might just get a mild case of it and recover from it, it's the other people that you might come in contact with and give it to that that might not be okay or that might might even have an underlying issue that people don't even know about and then ends up affecting them really badly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are more as there are more cases worldwide, we are hearing of people who aren't elderly or have diseases getting the, the disease and having worse outcomes, but the general healthy young population, you know, will recover with mild symptoms, they may even have no symptoms. So, but we do have to bear in mind that even if you don't have many symptoms, that as the cases increase and our health system becomes overwhelmed, even people with non-coronavirus related illness can be affected by the lack of services that are available. So that's an important thing to try and remember right now. I guess on that note as well, should we still be going to the doctor for appointments? Like even for instance, our pap smears, if they're due, should we off those things or you know uh, what should we be doing about going to the doc what's the advice yeah so we're moving very much towards telehealth which basically means phone consults so at our practice and I know a lot of practices first off you'll get a phone call with the doctor and they will sort of triage that phone call as to whether you need to come in and there are really important things that need to continue you know people are still getting normal sickness and illness you know maybe pap smears antenatal care we might be converting some antenatal care in the early stages to telehealth but actually it's really important that you come and we assess you flu vaccines really important children's vaccinations you know they need to be done on a schedule because that schedule is evidence-based and if we start messing around with the time frames for vaccinations they can become less effective so i think look doctors are still working we are still there and even if we're not doing a lot of face-to-face at the moment we will do face-to-face and we just put in precautions and because of that the surgeries are actually very empty at the moment and we are doing a lot of cleaning and very cautious about our social distancing so it's not you know as sort of a scary dangerous place to go if you need to see a doctor so I mean you're not going to be in the waiting room with other people that are waiting there to be tested they're going to other areas aren't they yeah so all the hospitals have COVID-19 clinic we also have an area to assess people people um, with respiratory illness in a separate building. A lot of people have sort of gazebos or tents outside. So it's really, we are doing our very best to keep people separated. On the the point of making sure you get your checkups during pregnancy and, and stay on track with those, is there a greater risk for someone who is pregnant for them to pick up the virus? What happens with the baby and, and protecting the baby from it? Um, what's the advice with that? So the facts are that there's no data that suggests that there's more miscarriage or stillborn in early pregnancy. But a lot of our advice comes from influenza infections and the fact that in pregnancy if pregnant women get influenza and get a serious disease they do have factors that mean they get a worse disease so we have put pregnant women in a higher risk category and that means they really should be self-isolating at this point in time there's no evidence yet you know things do change that you can pass it on to the baby and they have tested sort of amniotic fluid and tested babies and there's been no sort of transmission to the baby directly I guess it will affect pregnancy in terms of how you're going to receive your antenatal care and how you're going to experience labor and being mm. in 
isolation and that lack of support in that respect. So it's going to be a complex issue. But, you know, essential workers, obstetricians, doctors, we are still here. We are still supporting people through pregnancy and keeping them as safe as possible. Obviously, the high risk people, the advice is for them to isolate um, to, to protect themselves and, and if they're pregnant to protect the baby. Um, but other people that have, are doing online learning with their kids now and, and anyone that can work from home, all of those people are self-isolated. How do we get around the fact that obviously I'm I'm working from home, I've got my two kids online learning, but my husband's still going to work. So and I'm still sending him to the grocery store and he's the person that's going out into the into the world. How do we protect ourselves from them then coming back into the home on a daily basis? And I guess with things like bringing shopping bags in and, and their shoes in from the outside. But like my my mind just starts to go, you know, into <laughs> overdrive, like he's touched the keys that touched it, his hands touched the door at the grocery shop. Like how what what's the advice we just calm ourselves down and, and have some, I guess, points of these are the basic things that we should be doing to cover ourselves if we do have to go to a shop or our, our husband's still working or someone in the house is still working. It can be really scary not being able to see your enemy, I guess. Yeah. There's clear evidence on the benefits, as you said, of your staying home, keeping your kids home, you know, that is staying home. And then when we're going out, make sure that people are practicing social distancing, staying 1.5 meters away and washing your hands. I mean, that's been all over the media. We know that that's what we do. You know, the virus can stay alive on surfaces and plastic in particular up to three days. So there's no exact evidence or recommendations, but like the CDC and the Australian Department of Health recommend that if you have someone sick at home, that you wash surfaces with soap and water, disinfectant sprays or dilute bleach. And that's really effective at killing this virus because of its structure. So, you know, you could sort of extend that to other objects. I mean, it's not going to be 100% and there's no evidence whether it helps or not. But I think that for me, my house is like a safe haven at the moment and I want to keep it that way. So I've been washing fruit and veg with soap and water and, and that's not a bad idea anyway. We've got a lot of pesticides and herbicides, so that's not a bad idea. And then spraying or wiping down with a bleach solution, things coming into the house. I mean, they use the term high touch areas, so doorknobs, car handles, maybe a steering wheel even if you were washing things outside the home. I think, look, it's it's really tough. Like we all want to protect our family. I think, I mean, managing stress. Should we be going as and... far as like cleaning bottoms of shoes and things like that? Or is that because you're not basically going to be licking the bottom of your shoe? It's okay. Yeah. Like... I mean, we are leaving our shoes outside. The virus doesn't survive forever on things. So if you leave things and you're, you know, and when I come back from work, I'm, we come in through the laundry door and we have a sink there, wash our hands. I take off my scrubs from work. They go straight in the washing machine, you know, wash my hands again. And I go have a shower before I see my kids. So if you wanted to adopt that for anyone coming into the home, that's an option. Trying to mm -hmm. get a system which is easy, which can become habit that you just, that's how you do things. So what about grocery items you've picked up through? from the shop like you know a box of cereal I, I think I read that it can survive on cardboard or, or a package that's coming from the postman like how far should we be going with things like that there's no sort of formal recommendation I'm just literally giving you my opinion I guess yeah. which is that if the virus can survive on an object why wouldn't you just clean it yeah um, and just reduce the effects I mean the the effect of touching something and if you're not touching your face when you're and that's a certain level of protection but I guess when you come into your home you want to be able to just act as normal and but man when you're trying not yeah. to touch your face you realize oh, no. like you actually touch your face because when I went to the grocery day. shop the other day I'm like don't touch your face oh my nose is itchy do not yeah you start <laughs> doing like the old elbow 
rub of the nose and yeah it's it is it's just a natural instinct for sure and then I guess someone that maybe like one of the questions that we had was someone's got their partner on a navy ship at the moment with 300 people is it like a cruise ship once someone gets it will it just pretty much go through the ship how do they you know are they worrying for nothing like what should they be thinking about being on a navy ship with all those people I mean obviously the safest thing to do is stay home and isolate so but for us to have an ongoing navy healthcare system supermarkets functioning we have to take that additional risk to go out and in an enclosed space a ship if someone has coronavirus on board there is potential that it could spread faster I would hope that the ADF have systems in place where they are cleaning and they could isolate and test those people appropriately I guess if they've been on there for two three weeks without an infection on board they actually become safer because it's not quite like a cruise ship where people are getting off and on and in contact with new people you know it becomes quite an isolated unit of you know no infection but I think I would actually be more worried about how I'm going to cope as a military family without my ADF person here and what I'm going to do and and focus my energy on that rather than worrying about them we cannot control that situation whereas we can sort of control what we're doing at home and then I guess because I follow you on Instagram once I saw that you were self-isolating your children and the the government advice was that the schools were still open and yes kids should still be going to schools I thought "Mm, if my GP's not sending her kids to daycare I'm pretty sure I'm not going to send my kids so that was when we decided uh no the kids will stay home but um one of the questions that came through was do you think that the government's overreacted like what do you think the government's response to this has been overreaction or definitely the way that it should have proceeded i don't think they've overreacted i think there's so many ways to manage a pandemic it's so complex and i don't pretend to be an epidemiologist or a public health specialist but the one way is to have complete lockdown close your borders very early on and you try and eliminate the virus and that's sort of the way new zealand's gone at the other end of the spectrum you just let the virus go spread through the community and you get herd immunity because some people survive but you know that's sort of what the us and the uk did but they've sort of backtracked now because they realize that this is such an infectious disease that your case numbers just skyrocket and your health system will crash and then people who you know have uh, heart attacks or you know traumatic births anything that need intensive care then they will also suffer and die from this so I seem like our government is sort of taking a middle road, which is we have got a sort of lockdown. It's not 100%. And in that case, we can control the caseload, but we have to wait for a vaccination really to end this. And that can take quite a long time. So the concern is, are we letting this go on too long by trying to control the cases? But I think most healthcare workers would say they're pretty terrified about what's going to happen if the cases grow. When I start getting into the cycle of, you know, what if, how is this going to pan out? Because I like to think of every situation and how, you know, just to stay on top of my thinking and and quell my worries. If, you know, we get through the flu season, but it's still going on and we have all of next term as online learning and everyone's staying at home for six months, like they're saying, but there's still no vaccination. We're not going to just be out at the end of the six months go, okay, well, let's go back to normal life and there's no vaccine. Like, wouldn't it just keep going on? A cycle of cases going on and on like how do we without the vaccine yeah. how do we how, how are we going to live normally <laughs> it's pretty scary the prospect of a world without a vaccine and this is just one disease you know imagine if we didn't have other vaccines but yeah i mean it's a really we don't know no one knows how long it's going to be vaccination development takes time and then we have to actually deliver a mass vaccination program and i think things change all the time we're just relying on our public health specialists and epidemiologists to tell us that look right now we're doing this sort of lockdown and we're trying to control cases so really at the moment stay home you know isolate if you have symptoms wash your hands social distance that is our core message at the moment that might change you know if 
who knows what yeah. it will be like in six it's, months time. yeah it's they really can't i mean obviously they're giving that sort of time frame so people can i guess it's not a certain end date but it's just something for people to have in mind is that yeah. this is not going to be like a two-week thing this is going to be a long process and it may even change you know in another month's time it might be eight months or but yeah. they just don't know like yeah like you don't know the government doesn't know no one knows like the hard thing is the uncertainty you know yeah. we like to have some control and know what to expect and prepare but i think if you can try and control the small things in life you know make those things that we're having to do now habit so that you can get used to it and i guess preparing yeah. for the long term helps you get those strategies in yeah. place and i guess not brushing it off as i just have to deal with this for a couple of weeks and it'll be okay like mm. trying to look at it as uh, like maybe someone going into a deployment or a separation or someone going for a course over the other side of the country we look at it and go okay well what do i need to do for this long-term period or six months or nine months whatever the deployment is and what things can i put in place to help myself get through that so we kind of need to be looking at this as the same thing all of our adf members are pretty much on on call basically we need to look at it as you know every adf member is an operational member at the moment yeah i mean and every every deployment has its difficulties i mean i i've always found the beginning of a deployment the most difficult because those first few weeks you're really adjusting to something new and i feel like that's where we're at at the moment yeah. we're at the beginning this is the really tough stage where we are adjusting it's just that and, you've got no, yeah. none of those things that you can draw on at the moment <laughs> grandparents yeah, know, babies, play dates to you yeah. know pass the time you know, on weekends we are a super resilient bunch of people i think and yeah. you know hopefully the adf community can come together and support each other and you know there is that you know what those other people are going through it's such a unique yeah. experience that hopefully we will be able to support each other yeah i mean social isolation has a lot of issues with it in terms of mental health but also there possibly domestic violence with that isolation as well so mm. there's numbers the 1800 respect is still running and gps also are trained to help in those situations so it's just you know the isolation that we're going through now is saving lives like we have to think of it like it's so important and we will it will be a struggle but it is saving lives you know that's what we're doing hopefully as things change will be guided through this by the experts and just yeah. it's very tough but we will get through this together and a belief that we will get through this is so important I so hope you were able to relate or take something away from today's episode. There are definite ups and downs to military life, but let's get the conversation happening so we can see that we are all in this together. We are all just doing our best. So until next week, you got this. Let's do this together one day at a time. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode has touched you, helped you, or given you that extra confidence to keep going, to continue to hold down the home front, to continue to do all the things i would so appreciate it if you could pop into apple podcasts and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review a comment about what you would like to hear more of or just some encouraging words if you want to suggest a guest i am always looking for new people to talk to you can do that by jumping over to the website www.militarywifelife.com.au and clicking on our podcast page i would love to hear from you 